Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Back in 1 Peter chapter 4, so let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to read from 12 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that it is truth. We thank you that it is inspired. We thank you that it is Uh, inerrant and authoritative. We thank you that you have given us minds that have been illumined by your Holy Spirit to understand it. And yet, Father, we have indwelling sin within us which resists the commands of your Scripture. And so we pray that we would not be hearers who forget your word or who fight against it, but we would be hearers who do your word, that we would find it our delight to obey you as our Father. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Jesus, our Savior, said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross, Jesus tells us who claim to follow him. The Christian faith is it's a faith of cross-bearing. Jesus took up a cross and we take up our crosses. Those who peddle a false gospel do not teach that. And not having eyes to see or ears to hear, they say that the Christian faith is one of, of growing wealth and improving health. But it's not of taking up a cross. Jesus said, take up your cross. Jesus took up his own cross, and upon that cross, he, he died for sinners. It was the work of the fa- that the Father had sent for him to accomplish. And without Jesus taking up his cross, taking up the humiliating and miserable work, of cross-bearing, we would be dead in our sins and hell-bound. The undeniable truth, though, is that Jesus was given a life of suffering by his heavenly Father. Cross-bearing was his work, and cross-bearing, therefore, is the mark of every disciple of Christ. Cross-bearing. Workman says, 
this in his book on the persecution of the early church. He says, the cross is the dividing line, both in the life of the world, of every individual, and of the Christ himself. It's the dividing line. Let's remember that the cross was not merely Jesus showing us how to suffer, uh, though it was that. It was him showing us how to suffer, but it's not merely that. But the cross was Jesus suffering for the sake of others, right? It was him suffering for the sake of others, suffering uh, for the well-being of others. That, I think, is what it means when we're told to take up our cross, right? We live not for ourselves, we don't live for our own pleasures, but we live for the sake of others, for the message of the gospel, for the well-being of, of strangers, friends, family. The cross-bearing life will be marked with suffering and also with joy. Suffering as you deny self, right? Suffering as you face hostility toward the message of Jesus. Joy, though, as you do the will of the Father. But again, Jesus' death on a cross was not merely to show us how to suffer with faith. More importantly, it was a, an atonement. It was a vicarious atonement, right? It was Jesus suffering in our place and for our redemption. To draw in the immediately preceding passage in 1 Peter, which we looked at last time, the cross was Jesus burying a multitude of sins in love. That's what cross was. Our cross bearing is similar, right? Though it cannot atone for anyone's sins. Can't do that. It's not that potent. It's not that effective. Only Jesus' suffering can do that. It can, though, demonstrate to the world the self-sacrificial love of Christ. It can point them toward Jesus' cross bearing Taking up your cross, sacrificially loving others, is suffering. It is. It's suffering. It's self-denial. It is uh, considering others better than yourself. Right? It is going hungry that somebody else might eat. It's cooking a meal for ungrateful children. Right? It is so many things in which our goal is to show Christ-likeness to a to a hostile household, to a hostile workplace, to a hostile world. That's what it means to take up our cross. And it's, it is undeniably lonely work. It's undeniably lonely. Notice the first word of this section of the Apostle's letter to those who are suffering for their faith, suffering for their cross-bearing. He calls the, his, his fellow Christians beloved. Is beloved. At times, there's, there is nothing more comforting than a good word from a brother or sister in Christ. A timely, good, kind word from a brother or sister in Christ. In, in the midst of persecution, when, when our perception is that the whole world is against us, and, and we're, we're tempted to think that we're foolish for for continuing to bear witness or for continuing to bear our cross. In those circumstances, just hearing someone call us a friend is wonderfully refreshing. 
or would be wonderfully refreshing if we had ever experienced anything like that. And so throughout this letter to the persecuted churches in Asia Minor, Peter was, has been working to make sure those who are receiving this letter have their minds and hearts in the right place. He wants them to know that they should not view their suffering as God's curse. He wants them to know that following Christ brings with it inevitably difficulties, pain. But those who are in the midst of persecution, having property taken away from them, having children removed from them, um, being shunned from society, being mocked by, by even long-time friends, losing their jobs, facing bodily harm, or even imminent death, they perceive, right, as you and I would, that the whole world is against them, that there is nobody for them. Along comes the apostle who expresses his deep love for those who are suffering, right? Just by saying beloved. It's, it's a picture of sympathy. It's the kind of sympathy we should pray God allows our proud and hard spirits to feel and to express. The apostle Peter, as a, as a pleased father, right, looks looks on his children who are taking up their crosses and his heart is filled with love for them. They're suffering for the name of Christ and he's proud of them. And the expression of that love for them makes them, you know, able to bear their load. We shouldn't forget the power of a well-placed word or a simple expression uh, of our mouths for those who are suffering. Undoubtedly, the apostle's expression was not Merely an expression of love either. It came from the heart. You know, sometimes we, through duty, say certain things. Other times it's just the overflow of our hearts that are speaking the words. Would that it was always that, right? But that's no reason not to do it when your heart doesn't feel it. Right? To encourage somebody with your words. Then Peter tells them that, what they're experiencing, this heat of persecution, shouldn't surprise them. In other words, this is par for the course. Uh, what did you expect? Right? When you decided to follow Christ, what did you expect? Did you expect flowery beds of ease? Right? What did you expect it would be like to follow the one who was rejected by men and despised? Did you think that those who followed Christ would have an, an entirely different path to go down than the one that Jesus went down? Why? You know, why? Why would we think that given, I mean, if we know the Gospels, if we know the life of Jesus, if we know the Scriptures, why would we ever think that following Christ would be free of pain? Uh, it's often our experience, isn't it? We, we witness to a friend because we, for once, feared that they would die and go to hell. Right? For once, we're with our friend and we've been wanting to witness to him and for once, we actually feel the weight of hell and eternity. And we share it with, with our friend. And immediately, that friend not only rejects our message but begins to hate us for being so judgmental and never speaks to us again the rest of his life. 
cut us off. Well, dear brothers and sisters, welcome to Christ. Welcome to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Welcome to what it's like to follow the one who is despised and rejected of men. And yet, we still are surprised when things fall out that way. Right? We wonder if we failed in, in knowing enough apologetics. My arguments weren't just right for so-and-so. We wonder if we should have been slower or, you know, more subtle in our witness. Maybe we should have taken more time. Maybe we should have just floated out some of the, the easier teachings of Jesus rather than hell is real. And unless you believe, you're going to hell. We wonder if, if we really were unkind to share the gospel. And we, for some reason, are surprised that our good deed would not be received as a good deed. In fact, we are both, you know, surprised and think that God is punishing for us for a good deed. And, and then we perhaps begin to think, you know, this thought, and that's thoughts that resent God asking us to be a witness. And as we have seen much of in recent years, at that point we concoct a deconversion story. That's the hot thing right now in many circles, deconversion stories. Or maybe it's just new to me. It's, it's not new, certainly, but um, thinking that you need to podcast about it is the new part. Deconversion stories. A story in which we recast our entire faith as hatred and, and for the sake of love and affirmation, we put Christianity behind us. Right? The reason we see many celebrity Christians deconverting is because they were taught wrong. They were taught wrong. They were taught that following Christ was something other than cross-bearing. Right? They were taught that following Christ would gain them friends and it would increase their influence. And along comes the Apostle Peter who tells the man who is angry at God because his homosexually tempted friend perceives that his faith is hostile to his way of life. To that man, the Apostle Peter says... Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as if some strange thing were happening to you. Why are you surprised that your Christian faith would be an aroma of death to some? Why are you surprised that your Christian faith would keep you from landing a multi-million dollar contract with a talent agency? I mean, why are you surprised that your Christian faith would make you a pariah in your office? Why are you surprised that your, your Christian faith would cost you many things that this world holds to be precious? Right? Jesus said, take up your cross. Was that unclear to you when you determined to follow Christ? Did you really think that you could follow Christ and still run with your old friends? Right? Did you really think that your faith in Christ wouldn't put you at odds with your pagan 
earth-worshipping mother. I mean, or your pagan sex-addicted father. Why are you surprised that the Christian faith has, would be costly? It would cost you so much. That your life would be one of suffering was not in the fine print. Right? Jesus announced it continually to his disciples. It's written in, in the headlines, dear brothers and sisters. It's 400 or 4,000 point font. Right? This is a headline. Take up your cross. Scripture says, Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you. And then notice, which comes upon you for your testing. You mean my fidelity to Christ in the face of friends who reject Christ is a test? It's a test? You mean God puts me in situations where he shows me whether my heart is wholly devoted to him? And the answer is yes, God does that. God does that. The eyes of Yahweh move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support who? Those whose heart is completely his. God tries our faith, and he does so by persecution. In other words, he intends to refine us by putting us through suffering for our witness. He doesn't intend to destroy us. He intends to refine us. Think of Peter. Think of Peter. Had he been tested? Had he been tested because he had determined to follow Jesus? Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've told him to go away. No, that's not how it goes. Right? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have been turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Satan sifts Peter like wheat. Do you know what that means to sift something like wheat? It means to toss it up and down violently so as to remove the wheat from the chaff, right? It means to be tossed about violently. So Satan sifts Peter like wheat by God's permission, by Jesus' you know, command. He afflicts Peter and the temptations are intense and Peter even goes and denies Jesus three times. And the, but the intent of Satan is to destroy Peter's faith. But in the end, this instrument of Peter's testing is for his refinement. This testing, which he passes by the skin of his teeth, deepens the strength that he would have to then strengthen his brothers who were going to be facing Satan's sifting. Fiery ordeals come upon us for our testing too. They, they're meant to prove us. They are meant to strengthen us so that we might then strengthen others in the midst of different fiery ordeals. And no doubt Peter recalled being tossed about by the devil, being attacked by that roaring lion, right? And having come through the test, his faith was proven. His faith was proven. Now he could use that strength, that proven strength, 
to give courage and encourage endurance for those persecuted Christians he's writing to in this letter. He knew what it was like. He knew what they were going through. As one commentator put it, the purpose of this testing, of being in situations where our faith is challenged by either Satan himself or the heat of persecution, is to separate the chaff of sin from the fine wheat of our new nature in Christ. Again, it is through suffering that God sanctifies us. And the proving course he puts us through is persecution. He will have us choose Christ over every other thing in this life. He will have us follow Jesus no matter the cost. He will test us until the day we die. And we must, as Calvin puts it, become habituated to suffering. Habituated to suffering. Calvin says this, For whosoever has resolved to fight under Christ's banner will not be dismayed when persecution happens, but as one accustomed to it, will patiently bear it. That we may then be in a prepared state of mind when the waves of persecutions roll over us, we ought in due time to habituate ourselves to such an event by meditating continually on the cross. Now let me address something here. The affliction that the scripture is addressing is not from troubles common to man's life, like sickness, like contagion, like um, financial misfortune, like blowing out your knee or stubbing your toe. What affliction this scripture is addressing is, as it says in verse 14, those times when you are reviled for the name of Christ. Okay? There are other scriptures that help us come to terms with life in a fallen world, life in which our, we have migraines and autoimmune disorders and money problems. This is not one of those passages. The focus in this passage is suffering because of your witness for Christ, right? It's worth saying this, that your health problems are not suffering because of your witness. They may be suffering, but they are not part of your suffering as a Christian. Don't get confused about this. So many people want to be martyrs for the Christian faith, and yet the only suffering they undergo is what is common to all men, what is common to believers and unbelievers alike. Right? They don't suffer because they've taken a scriptural stand. They merely suffer because they have fallen sinuses. And many people suffer not because they're a witness, not because of their bad colon. Many people suffer because of their sin. Right? And they, they even tend to put that in the category of suffering for Christ. Right? And that is a terrible error. Right? But I'm, that's, that's the passage next week. We'll get to that. Don't suffer as a murderer. Right? Suffer as a witness for Christ. Um, we'll come to that next time. Verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now that brings in another component. What is to be our response to suffering 
persecution, suffering as Christians, and it is to rejoice. We are to rejoice. After the council had the disciples of Christ flogged, right, Acts chapter 5, the council in Jerusalem has the, the disciples of Christ flogged, and flogging is no, no uh, walk in the park, right? To be flogged. To be flogged is to have very painful objects lodged in your back by force, right? It is, it is terrible suffering that none of us have experienced, right? They, they had them flogged. And why did they have them flogged? Because they were preaching Christ in Jerusalem. And what does it say about the response? Does it say that they got depressed as they thought about what impact this would have on their earning potential? Does it say they got angry as they thought about the tyranny of the council? Unjust tyranny? Does it say they got fearful as they thought about where they could go to remove themselves from the council's gaze? No, it says this. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame. For Christ's name. And let's not forget that they didn't walk away from the presence of the council without much pain. They had been flogged. Imagine that. Bleeding. Bleeding. Bruised. Needing medical attention. That was their fiery ordeal. The shame of being treated like a common criminal criminal. And the pain of suffering physical abuse didn't stifle their joy. They rejoiced. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is the kind of faith that we should have. When our faith causes division, right? When our faith causes losses, when our faith causes us to suffer, we should not be surprised. We should not think that something unique is happening to us. No, rather we should rejoice. We should praise God. We should sing songs. We should dance. Right? Part of that rejoicing came about because they had endured and their flogging was over, no doubt. But part of their rejoicing came about because they remembered Jesus' words and they took them to heart. Be, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And they... They, heard, they remembered Jesus' words and they thought, praise God. Here we are and here it is. Jesus had said it. They weren't surprised or somehow caught off guard by it, but they received it and they rejoiced. That's faith. That is faith in the midst of persecution. In fact, one, one of the most encouraging thoughts we can have in the midst of the fiery ordeal of persecution, is that we are merely experiencing things just as our Savior did. Right? To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. To the degree that you share what Christ went through, keep on rejoicing. To suffer like Christ and for similar reasons as Christ, for serving His Father, and it is indeed one of the most important ways we can witness. In our suffering for his name, 
we are, as Paul puts it, fulfilling what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, there's nothing deficient in Christ's suffering from the standpoint of merit and atonement. His sacrifice was complete and finished. But in this sense, that his suffering testified to his love for his Father, that has ended. Right? But that kind of suffering continues somewhere other than on the cross and other than in the body of Jesus. That suffering continues in the body of Christ, which is his people. Right? They are the church. They are his body. Our most powerful witness will be serving God, choosing him, loving him, even if the whole world is against us. And that suffering will be seen. Verse 13 ends by bringing in the day when Christ returns. That day, for many, will mark the beginning of eternal pain. And, but for those who trusted or trust in Christ, that day will mark the end of suffering. The very pain we endured as disciples of Christ will make that day a day of exaltation, a day of pure joy. We will applaud and shout and sing and rejoice that Jesus has come And there will be no regrets for any of the pain, any of the intense pain we endured to be a follower of Christ during our lives. There will be no regrets, right? We will not regret having to distance ourselves from parents who hated our faith. We will not regret having submitted to Christ even though our children hated us for following Christ. We will not regret having lost our livelihood because our boss asked us to betray our Lord. Now on that day... On that day, we will rejoice with exaltation. Trust me, there is, there is no loss in this life that will make hating the return of the Son of God seem justifiable. There will be only two responses to the action of the King of Kings at the final tribunal. Exaltation or calling for the mountains to fall on you. There will be no pride on that day. None. Because every man will be judged according to his works. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Blessings come in many forms, don't they? Sometimes God blesses us with children. Sometimes our blessing uh, comes with a simple good Good night's sleep. Right? Sometimes our blessings come when months of anxiety wash away. Sometimes we are blessed when we read Scripture and have a, have a deep time of prayer. But as Scripture teaches us, sometimes blessings come in this form. You are hated. You are reviled. You are rejected. You are deemed a lunatic for the name of Christ. Some of us have perhaps never known that blessing because though we claim the name of Christ, we have simply lived by answering all of life's dilemmas by doing what our flesh wants us to do. Right? We haven't had a moment where we've had to be on Jesus' side or be on the winning side. Right? We've safely navigated through life having two gods, self and Jesus. But those who have submitted themselves to Christ, who have a genuine and lively faith, 
They know what it is to be persecuted. They have chosen Christ over self, over family, over money, over friendship, over peace. It is only those who know the blessings of being reviled for the name of Christ. Right? They are the ones who, who know this blessing. There is such joy in those moments when everything crashes down around you, but you know that God is pleased with your obedience. That, that the, the few times where everything's crashing around you, not because of your sin, but because of your obedience, right? You've experienced that. You've had to take a stand when it was the last thing that was uh, deemed reasonable in the eyes of the people around you. Right? It's at those moments when these words of the psalmist come alive, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. Just you. Just God and obedience to him. When our souls sing that song, that psalm, we truly can face the most fiery ordeal and in the midst of the flames we can know we are blessed. Right? I think of that, that hymn, How Firm a Foundation. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame will not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. It's a wonderful hymn. Verse 14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Your persevering faith when you are hated for following Christ is proof that the Spirit rests on you, that the Spirit rests on you. Right? To have that Spirit on you and in you, that pledge of our inheritance, is far better than easy days and friendship and honor in the world. Better to have the Spirit with you and the world against you. It's better. It's better. It's called blessing here. Right? Blessed when you are reviled for the name of Christ. When people come at you, when family members come at you, when strangers, when government, when whoever it may be come at you and tell you you're a fool for following Christ, you should at that point not get your hackles raised. You should smile. You should put a big dopey smile on your face and say, praise God. Praise God. This time I'm not wrong. This time it's not because of my sin. This time it's because I've obeyed my Father. Praise God.